0: Welcome to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm Curtis Lockhart. On each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss key trends in global development in the world of cities, including the role charter cities and innovative governance will play in humanity's new urban age. For more information, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. I'm Jeffrey Mason, research manager at the Charter Cities Institute. My guest on the podcast today is Charlie Robertson. Charlie is the global chief economist for Renaissance Capital and is the author of The Fastest Billion, The Story Behind Africa's Economic Revolution, and The Time-Traveling Economist, Why Education, Electricity, and Fertility Are Key to Escaping Poverty, published this year. We talk about these and many related topics in today's conversation. Thank you for listening. Thanks for coming on the show, Charlie.
1: Pleasure to be here. Um, it's honor to come and speak with you. Thanks.
0: So you've spoken and written in the past about how you were sort of expecting a big boom for African growth over the past decade. As it, you know, the continent had been kind of on this sort of upward trajectory, things were looking relatively good. But of course, in sort of recent years, things have stalled out a little bit for a lot of countries in Africa. What do you think changed or, or, or what went wrong to let us to the situation where, where growth across Africa has kind of stagnated?
1: Well, when we did the fastest billion in, in 2012... It was after a good decade or or so of vastly improving growth already. I guess one of the themes I'm trying to get at in this book is that when things are going well, and the new book, The Time Travelling Economist, is more about these long-term underlying drivers. When things are going well, governments look good, everyone's praising them, and life looks relatively easy. So when growth was good in in the 2000 to say 2014 period, you had a decent commodity run that was supporting a lot of economies. Uh, so exports were up, budget revenues were up. The governments had a bit more to spend. They could improve infrastructure. You saw some decent projects actually getting completed. You saw the rollout of telecoms. And what we were trying to get at in the fastest billion was to first highlight all of the progress in different areas that were coming and then try and explain some of the underlying themes that might be explaining it. And we did touch on education. And one chapter in that kind of 14-chapter book was about education. There was some about better governance, although I suspect some of that now reflects the higher growth that, again, makes governments look good. But what I had not grasped was the importance of some of the other themes that I've been trying to work out what went wrong since 2014. The obvious answer is commodity prices fell, and that undermined growth for a fair number of countries in sub Sahara. But it wasn't just that. And the time-traveling economist is trying to work out what are the other underlying themes that really matter. Education, I've placed even more highly in terms of its importance now. But I've also added in the key points of electricity and, oddly, fertility rates. And this is the bit which is controversial to me, let alone to the people I'm now talking to about.
0: Sure. And we'll get to some of those, those topics in a little bit here. But I'm wondering how you think rapid urbanization fits into this story about African growth, right? Because historically in, say, the United States, the UK, Europe, elsewhere, cities were sort of these hubs for productivity and growth and sort of industrialization. And that sort of historical link has largely broken down for a lot of cities across Africa. So how does, how does rapid urbanization kind of fit into this, this narrative?
1: Well, in the time traveling economist, I've gone back to Europe in the 19th century, New York, uh, certainly Latin America in the 20th century as well. What's absolutely crucial is that you get your educated population. And I was, I was citing a study in, in Nigeria. I think 94% of those who got secondary school education left their village in Nigeria. And nearly everybody who didn't get to secondary school education stayed at home. So. Education prompts people to seek a better life, a better paid life, and that tends to involve going to the cities where the jobs might be. But the jobs aren't there if local savings across the economy are not pretty high. If you've got no savings in the economy, those better educated rural villagers do leave, they turn up in the city, but there's no financing for cheap factories to create the jobs. And so what you start to get is slum cities on a massive scale. And whether that's the favelas in Rio, or or whether that's the slums that you can see in Bombay, Mumbai, or increasingly in Lagos or or Kinshasa, and, and I think are going to be coming in a big way in Dar es Salaam, those slums are reflective of a lack of savings. And the lack of savings then is reflective of a lack of high fertility. So the lack of savings means a lack of infrastructure, a lack of money in the banks that can lend to create jobs to help companies set up. So people turn up and become urban poor instead of rural poor. And I, I cite a well, bank study, I think, about Sub-Sahara saying that's become quite a, a significant thing. I almost remember the phrase, which is quite good about that issue of, of people, yeah, something to do with poor entrepreneurs, it's people who, who've who created businesses, but just don't have the resources to build those businesses and therefore employ more people.
0: So you, can't, you, you basically you're sort of, we get people who are kind of stuck in this informal, small scale economy that really has really no chance of becoming productive.
1: Well, I still would guess that, and I can't prove that though, but guess that if you are collecting millions of people in one place, you've got sure. better potential to start building a business in the very slow way, actually, that 19th century Europe did, or the 19th century UK. So you'll have read kind of Dickens and, and all those Charles Dickens stories about poverty in, in the UK cities. The UK also had relatively high fertility. So they didn't actually have a vast amount of savings. And it took a really long time to industrialize and for the UK to grow its economy. China, Asia, so many of the success stories we know in the last 50 years has happened much, much more quickly, much faster growth, and urbanisation hasn't involved in East Asia that same degree of, of slum situation in the cities because I think the fertility rates came down faster, savings grew faster. So my point is that the cities do grow and they are helpful for growth, even in a higher fertility economy, but it's not the rapid growth. Progress that we could see.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's like say on the fertility point for a moment, right? So so what you you kind of articulated a little bit this argument, right? It's it's hard for for the poor to save, especially when they have a lot of kids to take care of, and you're not seeing sort of rapidly rising incomes. And downstream, this this creates problems for the availability of, of capital to be invested in, in an economy, right? And so at various various points in the last couple of decades, we've seen. Some really aggressive fertility control policies. right? China's one child policy is, is, is sort of the most notable of these. But now, a little ways down the line, we're seeing in real time, like a, a real collapse of, of birth rates globally, you know, even just outside of the high income countries. And that comes with a whole sort of slate of economic consequences. And so, policy is kind of shifted in the other direction. China upped it to a two child, three child, and policy now, uh, I think last year, cut all restrictions entirely. But we even saw these kind of reversals a while ago, right? Singapore, over a course of 16 years, starting in 1970, ping-ponged from stop it two to have three or more parentheses, if you can afford it, right? That's a really quick reversal. And now lots of countries are sort of trying to do the exact opposite of, you know, prop up there were yeah, yeah. With, with policy, and it seems to really not be that effective in, in most places. So how do you kind of overcome this Reversal, right? Where fertility causes certain problems when you're at a particular level of development, but then once it comes down, it causes a different slate of problems. Is, is there a way to navigate through that you think that hasn't really been tried yet, or how do you sort of balance these issues?
1: I, mean, I think this is a real problem because what we've got is the Western, primarily the Western media, or perhaps the Northern Hemisphere media, banging on about, and quite understandably so, the problems of low fertility. And rapidly aging societies. And we're going to see some pretty extraordinary changes in economic trends, probably in places like Korea, uh, which is going to be the oldest nation in the world by 2030, older than Japan, followed not that far behind by China. And what we've seen, and you've mentioned a couple of examples already, but I could throw in Russia or Iran, countries which have managed to get the fertility rate down, but unfortunately down to about one child per woman. And at that point, getting it back up again. Proves extremely difficult. But the mantra that's coming across, if you pick up The Economist magazine or the Financial Times, you'll get many more articles about the problem of low fertility. And when I sit there at the central bank in, in Abuja, Nigeria, and The Economist is sitting on the table, the message that's being sent is that low fertility is a problem. And while it is, high fertility is a problem first. And the countries that don't get their fertility rates down don't ever get out of poverty. We we don't have any high fertility economic success stories. You do have low fertility rich countries. You don't have high fertility rich countries. So my point here is is that the families can't save if they've got on average five or six kids. In fact, they don't save much if they've got on average above three kids. The big jump happens when you get down to two to three kids. And yes, if you get below two kids, Luxembourg or Hong Kong do have even higher higher savings, but really you don't need that level of savings. You don't need the kind of 200% of GDP sitting in deposit in the banks. Just getting that big doubling from about 30 35% of GDP bank deposits at three to four kids up to 60% on average when you've got two to three kids. That's the difference which suddenly enables governments to do everything, to roll out electricity that's cheap, to roll out roads and bridges and decent urban infrastructure. So I guess what I'd be getting at in the book to anyone who's listening on the fertility thing is, yes, get your fertility rate down below three. You don't need to do it via China's one-child policy. You know, every other country that's got wealthy has done it as well without that. But be wary of letting it fall below two, because getting it back up again becomes extremely difficult. So I guess what I'm trying to say is there's two stories here. There's a story I'm not writing about because it's not relevant to the escaping poverty core thesis of the book and that's the aging societies of the western northern hemisphere that's for somebody else to talk about but i'm just talking about let's get to the point where incomes have risen dramatically where governments have got infrastructure where economies are growing at 5 6 7% a year let's get to that point and then think about how to make sure you don't go overboard on the encouraging lower fertility
0: yeah that makes sense one of the other key themes that you you've talked a little bit about already is education and right, this is an area that receives huge attention within the international development community, a ton of research in this area about trying to figure out what works, what doesn't. Yet most sort of lower income countries, proficiency in basic mathematics, basic literacy, at least the data we do have, says it's it's really quite poor and progress really isn't happening in most places. Why is it so hard for countries to make their basic education systems better?
1: I mean, to come back to where this came from, or this renewed focus by me, you know, in The Time Traveling Economist 10 years ago, I talked about secondary school education, like 11 to 17 years old. But in this book, I ended up talking about just basic adult literacy. And it was prompted in part by trying to look at Kenya's potential for a manufacturing revolution, or East Africa's in general. And I was comparing it to Korea and Korea had got from 30% adult literacy in 1945 to about 90% in 1960. They claim, the World Bank says a little bit different, more like 85%, but it was still a big jump, 30 to 85, 30 to 90, massive jump. And this book on, on industrialization in the 60s that I found in the LSE library said you need to have 70 to 80%. Now, Korea did it very fast, and you can be slightly skeptical about the numbers. Stalin, Joseph Stalin, the Soviet leader, who who didn't really like to be told bad news, his people told him that the Soviet Union was getting two percentage points a year. So that's what 20 percentage point gain in literacy every decade, about 40% between 1920 and 1940, which was enough for the Soviet Union to industrialize and stop Hitler's victory in World War II, in fact. So for a start, it does take time. So what were sub-Saharan governments left with when the West... Decolonized in, say, 1960, most countries at best had about 20% adult literacy. So even if you manage Stalinist level of forcibly changing society with a very heavy-handed, top-down approach, you wouldn't really expect it to have got much beyond 60% adult literacy by 1980 and maybe 100% by the year 2000. That would have been your best-case scenario if you use Stalin's model as a... As a as a possible (laughs) proxy. I mean, the Koreans were telling you you could do it faster than that, but I am slightly skeptical of the data. They were trying to compete with North Korea, which claimed it got to 100% in about five or 10 years. And so South Korea took 15 to get to 90%. I think that was this little- (laughs) That
0: seems a little suspect. It was a little,
1: yeah. (laughs) I'm a little little suspicious. So it does take time. Right. But we're still not at 100% literacy, even in 2020 for- many countries in, in sub-Sahara. So what's gone wrong? Some countries started even lower. Some of the Francophone West African countries started at about 5% adult literacy in 1960. So you wouldn't necessarily even to have expected to get to maybe 85 by the year 2000. I mean, I guess there's a number of things. First, you had this wonderful period of the 60s and 70s, particularly the 70s, when commodity prices were high. Governments did have cash to throw at lots of different things. But education was not the proven developmental success requirement in the 60s and 70s. People were writing about it in theories, but we didn't have much data on how this was affecting economic growth. There was very little data. Development economics didn't really start until 1950. So in the 60s and 70s, certainly people were saying we need primary education, but they were also saying we need university graduates. Again, there's doubt about the figures here, but in Congo, Zaire as it was, there was a lot of... A lot's been written about them having maybe 30 graduates when they became independent. That's barely enough to fill a cabinet, let alone a university or a school or a hospital or the army or any of the many, many things any country needs to develop. So there was an argument they needed to focus on tertiary education and, of course, secondary education. It's not just about primary. And and then you've got a problem with teachers. When you've got a population that's growing as fast as sub-Sahara or South Asia's population group. In the late 20th century, you know the number of kids coming into the school system every year is growing. The class sizes are getting larger and larger and larger. And you're ending up in a situation today where in Malawi, I think you get class sizes of 80 or 120 children in one class. I mean, how can you possibly? I used to try and help kids learn to read in a, in a UK primary school when I was about 17. That was one for one. And you could see it maybe making a bit of a difference over an hour. That's me one-on-one with one kid, not me trying to teach 120 children how to read and write. So I think it becomes difficult when governments didn't know for a long time how important it was, when the population's growing so fast, and when governments have got so many requests for their time and cash and money, should you be investing in, in hospitals? One of the key things about the fertility rate is it's very strongly linked to child mortality. If you've got a lot of kids dying before the age of five, families tend to have more kids because they fear that result. So actually, if you're trying to get fertility down, then you are to be investing in basic healthcare, not necessarily basic education, one could argue. And I think whether well, it's security issues, civil war, default issues, the cyclicality of commodities, which means governments are flush with cash some decades and have nothing in subsequent decades, it makes it extremely difficult. To get this right. But the good news is that nearly everywhere has. The number of countries that still have a significant problem in the education front represent about a hundred million people globally, out of over well over seven billion now. Is it not nearly eight billion? So I think so. In that regard, there has been progress. Governments yeah. have in the end got it right. It's just taken quite a long time.
0: How much of the education issue is a chicken and egg problem in the sense that Right, there's an argument that you've sort of articulated about how education feeds into growth. But what about sort of the reverse of that where Growth you start getting growth that you have the economic and social conditions where right, it is no longer imperative that the kids are at home, say helping out on the farm or, or with the family trade or something, but where it actually becomes sort of more viable for those kids to attend school and right and the parents can evaluate that sort of trade-off and see, you know, yes, they should be going to school rather than you say helping at home and, and doing xyz that we need them to do
1: the trends do move together but the way it works is we can see from all of these studies is you won't get growth without education there's no illiterate rich country there's no high fertility rich country the people who are literate don't leave the village so they never get growth they're much more likely to have larger families and condemn those children to poverty because they won't have the cash the parents won't have the cash then to invest in them in their education so you can see that when women in particular get educated they're not having their first kid at 13 because they've already left school they're having their first kid at 19 when they've finally finish secondary school and the odds are they're having two less kids already so straight away it makes a difference those working women or potentially working women could go out and earn an income because they've had an education. And that makes the trade-off about having more children. Also, well, there is a trade-off because they're sacrificing an income. But again, if you're an illiterate woman working in a village, the income is is subsistence agriculture and not much better. So it can feed into itself, but I think what we can see in the data is that until you've got your basic literacy of 70 to 80%, you will not have a manufacturing sector. And if you do not have a manufacturing sector, Mm -hmm you are not going to see your country escape poverty. As there's a little exceptions like Seychelles, which is too small to ever have a manufacturing sector. But they, you know, they had tourism, which, again, takes off when you've actually got a literate society. You don't get massive tourism industries in countries that are illiterate. So however you take off, the education comes first. Manufacturing normally, but sometimes it can come through services. And then it becomes an issue of sequencing the educational priorities. So what the Koreans got absolutely right, whether you trust the exact numbers or not, primary school first. Make sure everyone's getting that primary school education. Everyone can read and write. And then focus on secondary. And pretty quickly, start focusing on tertiary a decade or so after that, because university graduates will be required to help you build that heavy industry, the steel industry, the car industry that you could be getting in 20 or 30 years after your textile takeoff. What we've seen in, say, Sri Lanka or Mauritius is, in fact, they they move more into services rather than heavy industry. But Korea in the 70s, when they're just doing textiles, were already planning their university courses to focus more on the sciences so that factories like Kia, Hyundai, Samsung, those businesses could start to thrive in the 1990s. So they were thinking ahead. And in that regard, growth helps because once the growth is coming in, the money is coming in for governments to start to build out that secondary and then tertiary education, which then enables you to take off to the next level and not get stuck in a kind of middle-income trap.
0: Yeah, this is something interesting that we're seeing a lot of in the new cities, charter cities space with universities and training centers kind of as anchor tenants or as components of some of these projects, particularly with a focus towards tech, towards training talent in in Africa and, and elsewhere in computer science and similar fields, different branches of engineering such that one, they can sort of facilitate the greater integration of sort of the global big tech firms into these places as as they sort of expand their physical presences or their remote presences, but also to, to bolster those fields on the domestic side. So I think it's, it's interesting to see how some sort of entrepreneurs, I think, are sort of taking that further along third step of tertiary education into their own hands and in, in their respective fields.
1: And when I think of a country like Kenya, you can see they've already got adult literacy of 80%. And that figure's been up there for over a decade now. So they've they've got enough to get out of poverty and move to the next level. Unfortunately, like the Philippines in the late 20th century, the fertility rate's still fairly high. It's still at about three and a half to four kids per woman, like the Philippines in in, in the 90s. And the Philippines was not a great success story because if your fertility rates that high, you don't have the local savings, so you don't have the electricity, and Kenya doesn't doesn't you don't have the cheap reliable electricity so the factories don't come so you then have to earn your return in a different way and the philippines did it by exporting their labor on a massive scale because they had well educated people well enough educated people to go and get jobs in hong kong or singapore but they couldn't create the jobs at home and then it becomes a remittance flow story back to the philippines now it's changed in the philippines now because the fertility rates come below three kids now the philippines has got cash from the banking system, which is enough to fuel its kind of manufacturing growth story as well. So it's got remittances and the manufacturing coming through and tourism. It's all all looking great for the Philippines. Kenya's not there yet. So I suspect we will see Kenyans moving abroad. I'm not surprised to see Kenyans kind of manning the hotel in Jordan I was at a couple of years ago, slightly more than a couple because that was COVID, but a few years back. But you've also got this technological change that wasn't open to the Philippines in the 20th century, which, is, as you're getting at, is tech. So you do have the Silicon Savannah story. It does help to have good universities that are helping support that specific sector. So I'm not, when I talk about manufacturing, what I really mean is high value added something away from subsistence agriculture, which has got no value added production. So it can be manufacturing, that's what we've got used to. It can be tourism. We've seen that happen. It could also, of course, be the tech space. But we've never quite seen it happen to take a country out of poverty before. But this might be the 21st century difference to the 20th century.
0: India seems like an interesting, perhaps, test of that, right? Because in, say, 1970, India and China were roughly the same in terms of GDP per capita, right? And then China takes off and starting in the, the 80s and 90s. India starts growing in the nineties, but it's never really been at so the same sustained high level and, and there's sort of this fairly sizable gap now. But right, you also sort of said there's kind of this observable trend where once countries get to a certain fertility rate, there tends to be a shift in the structure of the economy. And I think India is is starting to sort of get close. Very much. Or they're basically or they're really at or that that level you're talking yeah, about. It is. So what would you say your expectations are for, say, India over the next
1: Yeah. 20, well, years. in India's case, the fertility rate has come down, and that's absolutely fine. And what I find, I mean, there's an interesting comparison point, actually, to talk about Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka. So we, we could perhaps do that in a sec. But just between India and China, I was quite surprised when reading the book, and I had to delve quite deep into this. But Mao just didn't do very much for female education, relative to many other communist leaders. You know, from Lenin onwards, Communist leaders said, everyone needs to be literate. Castro got universal literacy by about 1963. I mean, he's quite lucky. Cuba started with a very high level. Soviet Union, very much a Leninist priority. Mao, Mao seemed to have a bit of a problem with teachers. And he thought they were a bit above themselves. A big chunk of them got sent off to kind of work camps during the Cultural Revolution. And the result of that was that by 1980, only 50% of Chinese women, adult women, could read and write which at one level I'm shocked by because it was a communist system already for 30 years by that point. But at another level, I'm not shocked by because no one bought anything from China in 1980 because the adult literacy rate wasn't high enough to industrialize. It took until the 90s for overall adult literacy to be high enough, over 70% for China to take off. It took India another 20 years. So from the early 90s until 20. 14 is the number, 2010 to 14 is when we know that the data got better for India. China had this advantage which enabled it to take off and industrialise and indeed produce services. Actually, it, China exported more services, the last time I checked, in, You know, I was comparing this in the 2000s, than India did, because China just had everything going for it. It had the low fertility rate and the good education. But India's there now. So India's fertility rate came down. It was actually government-pushed in the 20th century, in some cases, not very kindly on the population. There was some bullying, I think, of of certain people to get forcibly sterilized. So it wasn't ideal from a kind of humanitarian perspective. But nonetheless, with the education, that the numbers are now supporting India's growth. And India doesn't have that same level of external debt that high fertility countries usually have, because it's got low fertility, it's got its own savings. So it's managing to finance its own growth. And I think it's now going to be one of the fastest growing economies for the next 30 years. China's already aging. We know that. The labor force is already shrinking. India didn't do such an acute plunge in the fertility rate, and I think has got a lot longer to run. And I think, yeah, I think it's going to look great on, on the next 30 years, along with Philippines and along with Indonesia. These countries are all now at the right place with all of the Cylinders firing at 100%, well, close
0: to 100%. So you mentioned a little bit before Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and looking at the performance of, say, India, Pakistan, and, and Bangladesh specifically over the past maybe two decades, right? India has basically, since the 90s, been performing at a higher level than, than Pakistan and past Pakistan and GDP per capita. Bangladesh has now also overtaken Pakistan. What do you think is is going on here? Why is Pakistan struggling to keep up with Indian and and Bangladeshi growth?
1: Well, we talked about countries doing education, perhaps not as quickly as Stalin or as quickly as Korea. Pakistan's really not done it quickly. And I think that's been the big problem. All of South Asia started, at well, actually not Sri Lanka, but Bangladesh, India, and and Pakistan all started at roughly the same sort of post-colonial inheritance. No thanks to the Brits. You had something like 20% adult literacy in all countries in, in 1960. India had what was called the Hindu rate of growth in the 60s and the 70s, when they only grew up something like 1% per capita per year. Actually, not that different from some European countries in the 19th century, because the fertility rate was coming down slowly. The education rates were coming up, but slowly, but they got there. And Bangladesh got there. Bangladesh tried even harder on the fertility, getting the fertility rate down. Pakistan didn't, and I assume that a part of that was its focus on defence and military spending. You know, they had these number of wars in the first few decades of independence. It's had a sense of of existential threat, and so you've got, in some cases, brilliant infrastructure in Pakistan. If you've driven up and down the kind of the main highways, you know, you've got an infrastructure system that. Is built for an army to be able to get up and down the country if it needs to, to fight a war. But it didn't focus on educating girls. And yet, East Pakistan, which was Bangladesh, these two were the same country until 1971. East Pakistan didn't have to spend on defense after 71, in a big way, did decide to focus on education. And the situation now is that Bangladesh exports as much per capita as India does, and double what Pakistan does. So Bangladesh and India export double per capita, what Pakistan does. They've got enough electricity in both their countries because the fertility rate's low. But the fertility rate's still over three kids per woman in Pakistan. So they haven't had the local savings. So they've gone to dollar bond markets. They've gone to China to be able to fund their investment. And they've built up a lot of external debt. So you've got a government which hasn't focused on particularly female education is where you can see a real lag in Pakistan, but in Muslim Bangladesh, they did focus on enough female education and perhaps spent too much on defense. And and as a result, they are decade, two decades behind their peers. Sri Lanka is a different story just because they were actually looking like the most successful economy in South Asia generations ago. And apparently Lee Kuan Yew was really worried when he was in charge of Singapore from the 60s onwards. He was really frightened that Sri Lanka was going to eat his lunch that global trade was going to use that place, Colombo, as as a kind of the main trading port, not Singapore. What did Singapore have? It was kind of not very much, a little swamp in the middle of some islands. It's not a great situation. And and the British who financed, I think 25% of the economy was was the British naval base in Singapore. And when that left in the 60s, it was like stuffed. But they had the misfortune of of ethnic conflict, leading to that long war from the mid 80s to, to the late 2000s. Look, just when Sri Lanka should have been booming, they had the good education, it had the fertility, it had the good electricity, it was booming. It was industrializing. It's got a manufacturing export base today. But just when you should have been using those profits to reinvest in your economy, to support the growth model as Korea has done, or Singapore, or Taiwan, or Hong Kong, it went on defense issues or military issues, and or too much of it went. And the consequence then after 2009 was Sri Lanka says, we need to catch up. We lost all those decades relative to the East Asian dragons, the tiger economies. Let's catch up by borrowing. And they're now in default. So it's a very interesting story because it's one of those countries where low fertility, education, electricity, even when you've got it all right, it doesn't absolutely 100% guarantee that your economy just flies forever.
0: Yeah, policy conflict—all these things matter a lot.
1: Still do. They still do. But it's hard to muck it up. What I'm arguing is, is, it's hard to muck it up when you've got these conditions. Generally, you'll think, "Oh, those people know what they're doing." That guy Modi running India seems to have got it right. Duterte in Philippines—people may not have loved his populism, but you know what? The economy was doing well. But that's because he was lucky enough to have these good numbers. But if you're not lucky enough to have these good numbers, you go to Nigeria. And you say, what's happening there? The president gets the blame for a lot because so much doesn't look like it can work right. And I'm arguing it can't work right when savings are so constrained. Education levels still aren't there. Electricity still not there. It's very, very hard to look good as a government when you've got the inheritance that some of the current leadership in sub-Sahara have got today.
0: And while we're on this this topic of Pakistan, and and you mentioned Pakistan's increasingly important relationship with China, how do you see the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor or, or CPEC factoring into Pakistan's economic and political future? This is something that our senior researcher at CCI, Matt McCartney, he's written a book on this, which sort of more or less comes to the conclusion that while it certainly can be beneficial, it's far from, from a cure-all. Then there's kind of an active debate about, is it Time to sort of call CPEC a failure, right? The project at at Guadar seems pretty notable and, and important, but maybe some of the rest of the project less so. Where do you see CPEC and the China Pakistan relationship going?
1: Well, I mean, in general, Chinese lending to the developing countries I saw as pretty good and mostly on the positive side five or 10 years ago. It felt that the Chinese were coming in with very low interest rates. On the loans, which made a big contrast to my financial market investors I speak to, the guys who buy Eurobonds from various countries and will charge six, eight, 10% interest rates. The Chinese would come in and be charging two or three. So that felt good. The Chinese, my sense was, were focusing on infrastructure. When a government borrows a Eurobond, they might fund it to get a tax cut to win the next election. Short term, unsustainable. So it felt that. China was also developmentally close enough to countries like Pakistan, that it was only 20, 30 years ago. Elderly, more older Chinese in their 50s will remember what China was like when it looked a bit like Pakistan 30, 40 years ago. So for lots of reasons, I thought this was quite a good thing. Where I've kind of slightly altered my point of view is, is that when I looked into, and I can't talk about it with regards to Pakistan in as much detail, because I think they did focus on power there, as well as the transport corridor. And in fact, both are important. But elsewhere, it's been focused on mining projects in parts of Africa, which is great for China, which wants to buy the goods from those mines, but isn't quite as transformational. Or railway lines to, again, partly get some of those commodities back to China and less on what I think was absolutely essential was electricity. I think an element of this then is China has been lending on projects where it's now making those sort of products. Railways have doubled in size in China in the last 20 years. So it wasn't what led Chinese takeoff in the 80s and the 90s. Chinese takeoff in the 80s and 90s was city factories on ports selling goods, not much in the way of railways, not that much in the way of roads was necessary. You just had to have a decent port and some power next to a factory at that port. And only afterwards did they roll out the infrastructure. So I would argue for Pakistan, cheap financing for factories so that they could start to boost their exports. Was arguably more in Karachi, say, on the coast, would be more important than a rail network heading into China. Probably Pakistan would have been better with cheap financing for factories and exports of more textiles or to help them move up the value added curve in the agricultural sector where they're so strong. So I suspect there's been a slight angle of the Chinese not necessarily lending for exactly what the countries really needed. That's fair enough. You know, every country has its own interests in why it lends. Tide aid isn't isn't the only surprise. And of course, Chinese companies then have made money out of that too. So the two to three percent interest rate is the headline good news story. But if you have to use a Chinese company to build a power station and they're charging 10, 20%, sometimes more profits on that contract, a lot of that work effectively becomes a subsidy for China Inc., not necessarily for Pakistan or Kenya or Nigeria. So I mean underlying all of that, of course, for Pakistan is a massive geopolitical security aspects. They buy weaponry from China. They want strong links with China. They feel they need that alliance to rival to India. So there's another angle in quite a big way there. But I think it's still helpful. And in the long, you know, there is infrastructure getting built. And that's hard to take away once it's done, once the railway's done or some new generating is done. So in that regard, it's, it's probably still somewhat better on average than some of the financial market lending, which could be just a tax cut ahead of an election. Mm-hmm.
0: So let's let's stay with, right, because we've we'll been talking a lot about electricity here for, for a moment. Let's stay with that. One of the things that I did appreciate about your framing of the electricity issue in the time-traveling economists is your focus on getting energy consumption up, which is, in a lot of ways in in sort of Western countries is is, is a little bit of a taboo or, or you know a, a bad thing, there there's kind of this scarcity mindset. So I appreciated in, in particular your framing on that matter. But I'm wondering, how do you see the kind of global shift, at least attempted shift? I, I think maybe the conflict in in Ukraine and some other things have, have kind of made it more difficult. But this global attempted shift away from oil and gas is going to affect the electricity issue for a lot of these countries, right? Maybe it's cheaper to build a say gas plant than something else, but in terms of what the financing maybe is available for is something else that creates trade-offs and 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 challenges. So how are these how are lower income countries going to be able to sort of straddle this this problem?
1: Yeah, I'm talking about it every week at the moment, and it's hugely important. I I, I saw a guy who's just back from a, a conference in Brussels, and he just said it's appalling. We're sitting here in Africa trying to get power and Western banks are not going to finance a 10, 20 year fossil fuel project to enable us to get power because of Western moral concerns about climate change from countries that have been polluting for two centuries. And carbon emissions in somewhere like Nigeria, I think, is about half a tonne of carbon per person. The Kyoto targets from the early 90s, the Kyoto treaty targets were about three tonnes per capita at the time given global population, is now about two tons per capita. Nigeria could quadruple its power, carbon emissions, and still only just get to what the Kyoto targets are. The best country in Europe, I think, is Sweden, and they do about four and a half tons of carbon per person. And that's what nearly 10 times what Nigeria or Tanzania do. It's an incredibly sensitive issue. And the financing issue, I personally would argue, you, you do need some baseload of power, which is likely to be gas, could be coal, could be oil, because so much of the other power, as Europe's discovered this summer, is vulnerable to climate change in itself, ironically. You get a drought, and Norway's rivers can't produce the hydropower it used to. France's rivers can't keep the nuclear power reactors cool. So yes, solar power's going up, but you're losing on hydro and you're losing on nuclear. You do need some steady baseline of power. So... I'm curious as to how this plays out. Will we get you know, maybe Chinese banks or Indian banks or somebody being prepared to finance some of these long-term projects? Of course, it becomes a lot easier if your fertility rate comes down. Morocco's got 100% of GDP sitting in deposit on its banking system and the interest rate's 2% because they've got so many savings. So if Morocco wants to build out its own power supply, it can do that from its own resources. So in the 2030-year horizon, I suspect we won't be using fossil fuels anything like as much as we are now, but there could be changes. So there is an issue about baseload power, reliable power, but there's also an issue about how do you focus that power at first? And where I feel and fear that governments are making mistakes in some countries is that they're saying everyone should have access to power, which I think we'd all agree with. Of course, everyone should. But if you've got the choice between supplying power to a household that can't afford it, needs subsidies to pay for it, then if you are subsidizing that household to get connected to the grid, to start using electricity, it's costing a government money. And governments don't have much money in these countries. And if you instead focus on delivering power to factories, which is what Korea did in the 60s or 70s. What France did in the 1920s, what America did in the 1920s, and only then start rolling out electricity to the rural areas. That then means your factories are starting to make profit. And that profit means you can pay back the debts that have been used to build up the electricity system. That profit enables you to, well, to make a profitable system, not a loss-making system. And, and too many of the electricity systems in, in sub-Sahara are loss-making. The more sup- power you supply, the more losses you make the closer to bankruptcy governments are getting. This is not the direction I think governments need to focus on for the next five or 10 years in most cases. So there's a lot going on with power, uh, yeah. and it's, it's, a, it's a tough one.
0: I'm curious how much you think decentralized energy systems and energy markets will help leapfrog this a little bit, right? If you can't necessarily hook up to whatever your region's sort of unreliable power supplier is, but you can have maybe your own little windmill or your own solar generator or, or, or something else. How much can this problem be leapfrogged versus, you know, there's kind of that, that baseline you talk about?
1: For industry, I've been very excited by that idea. I've been asking a lot of people about that and I keep on getting the same pushback that let's take solar. You can put it on the roof of your big factory and, and it's great in countries with high sunlight, but, you know, when it's raining and that's going to have an impact and you have to shut down the factory at six o'clock because you haven't got any more power. That's not the most efficient use of a factory. Uh, you ideally want shifts to be working into the evening and using the equipment inside that factory to a higher degree. And the same for you know a windmill and the wind doesn't blow. So factories do need reliable base load power that's tended to come from fossil fuels in the past. But for households, well, I think this could be a brilliant way for a whole load of people to leapfrog. I saw some numbers in Zimbabwe, I think, and it I may got it wrong, 2 million people mm. have, have got access via their own solar panels on their own roofs because they can't use the grid. South Africa, there's been a huge push. I know a number of people who've, who've gone out there. Of course, they're the people who are better off. But then you've got that company, I think it's Mkopa in uh, Kenya, where they rent you, lease you a solar power panel to put on your roof. And every time you use it via an app, you're paying 20, 30 cents a day. But after 12 to 18 months, you've bought it outright. And then you've got your own power supply to charge up your phone to perhaps get your kid to learn some clever tech skills and start earning loads of cash. So this, I suspect, could be the the way to jump, to accelerate rural household, particularly rural households and smaller, smaller villages and so on, to get electricity in a way that it's probably not in the government's economic interest or ability to afford to do it really in the next five to
0: ten years. Yeah, it's definitely an exciting space, and I, I had no idea about that figure in Zimbabwe you gave. That's very surprising. I'm, I'm sure, you know, whatever whatever it actually is, if it's in that ballpark, that's that's a very, uh, I that's it. A very surprising, but very very exciting number. Definitely
1: double check it it's somewhere on my Twitter feed, Zimbabwe <laughs> solar at RencatMan you'll find the tweet.
0: <laughs> One thing I'm wondering about when we've been talking about finance. A lot of what we've been talking about here is either sort of on the private side or or maybe we're, we're kind of thinking in, in sort of a national perspective. But of course, in the US, right, there's a robust and elsewhere, there's sort of a robust network of you know, subnational municipal financing. But this is much weaker in the South, uh, global South, right? There's a case, I believe in Senegal, I think it was 2015, Dakar tried to issue a municipal bond and the national government shut that down and this financial infrastructure for cities and and regions is is generally very weak and creates a system where all these lower levels are are then reliant on the top. So I'm wondering if more of this financial infrastructure could be in a lot of cases it's it's literally legalized, but built out more. How receptive do you think say firms like yours, for instance, would be acceptable in in those kind of financial
1: products? That's a really interesting question. I'm not gonna give you a very good answer because I haven't done enough work on it, but I guess what I'm conscious of over 20 years is is the excitement that would greet a city of Buenos Aires bond, for example. And the yield was tended to be a bit better. Actually, the credit rating of the city, the capital city anyway, could often be in some ways better than the country as a whole. I mean, I would argue, say, Lagos in Nigeria, which has got a vast amount of its own tax base, might be a better credit in some ways. I mean, it hasn't got the access to the oil, that's a federal story, but you could see the case the cities to say, what Lagos in Nigeria needs, it's got the education, it's got the 80% literacy, it hasn't got the electricity it needs to develop a manufacturing base. So if they borrowed money to build that, suddenly you're in a city growing at five, 10% a year. So it is an interesting idea. I guess what I'm conscious of is having spoken to so many finance ministries, and Argentina's the perfect example here, is that when governments do lose control of their provinces or cities, or uh, see allow unchecked borrowing. The risk is it, it ends up backfiring and blowing up the, the country level, not just the city level itself. And I think that's why in Nigeria too, I don't think cities, states are allowed to go out and borrow money. But you're addressing a point where you think of China, and a lot of the urban development in China has been financed by local government. Cities, regions selling land to developers, and yes, eventually that go too far and cause a problem. But for decades, that's been supportive of Chinese growth. Yes, I can see it happening and I can see it working, but I can't think of any places at the present where that's being encouraged. And I guess it's it's because there is a fair amount of debt right now and with global interest rates going up. No one's trying to encourage people to issue more at a sub-national or city level.
0: Right. I think it'll be interesting as well as More and more of these types of city projects that we work with and that others are doing, as more and more of those start to reach maturity or or are are started, and some of these different financial institutions get more, I think, exposure to these types of projects to the point where a new city as an asset class is you know as sensible to somebody as oh okay you want to do a a transit system or a power system something like that. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see how how that develops as this sort of ecosystem matures
1: but, over the next, I just add in. Day. I was just talking to some people about Lagos at the moment because there's this debate going on for the well, it's been going on for a long time, but it's got more intense in the last year about VAT, value added tax, which gets raised disproportionately in Lagos because there's so much business in that city. Roughly 20 million. I mean, people say big in my numbers, but maybe 20 million people out of 200 million. This is, but maybe 20 or 30 percent of GDP just in this one city. But the VAT receipts, the value-added tax receipts get then collected by the federal government. And, and Lagos is saying, we're not getting this money back. This is our money that we're raising, that we want to be able to reinvest to make Lagos even more successful. So there is an element of, can you be given more ownership of your own the taxes and money and wealth that's created in, in your city? Yeah, we've got it in the UK. Where London subsidizes the rest of the United Kingdom. And sometimes Londoners packed into tubes trying to get to work. And I say, it would be rather nice if a bit more of that was spent here, please.
0: <laughs> For sure. So I've really enjoyed our conversation. And I'm wondering, now that the Time travel Economist is out, what's your next project? Do you know yet?
1: I think this is going to take a good few years to seep into all the areas I'd like it to. So I'm doing a, a trip down to, to East Africa in, in October to try and talk to people about the book and the themes in it hopefully in Nigeria in early December, Cairo at the uh, end of October. So my job now is to try and promote this and get people to think about some of these issues, because there are some key simple things, get infant mortality down, encourage smaller families, but not too small. And that then helps the savings and that enables your country to take off. But sadly for politicians, it's a payoff on a 10 or 20 year horizon. So it's it's trying to find people who has. Prepared to do the right thing for their children, even if it's not much help for their immediate career. Yeah,
0: that's a difficult task, but I think your work here will help push that forward in a big
1: way. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks so much for listening. We love
0: engaging with our listeners, so please always feel free to reach out. Contact information is listed in the show notes. To find out more about the work of the Charter Cities Institute, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org.